0: Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook.
1: This is Jim Zobel with the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. We are here today at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center with research historian Dr. Michael Lynch. Dr. Lynch, you've recently submitted a book that will be published soon about General Ned
0: Allman. Can you give us the full title of that? It's called Sikkim Ned, Edward M. Allman and the Army of His Times, 1916 to 1953.
1: Allman served in the First World War as well as the Second World War before coming to serve with... Uh, General MacArthur. Can you give us a brief synopsis of of his career up to that point?
0: Uh, He was uh, uh, graduated from VMI, uh, Virginia Military Institute, which at the time did not commission directly as it does today. Uh, He received a direct commission in in 1916 and uh, deployed overseas to France in the 4th Infantry Division and uh, commanded a machine gun company and briefly a battalion in France. He was wounded in action. Uh, received a wound badge, and then after the war he was one of those few officers who was allowed to remain on active duty. Uh, He lobbied to stay on active duty. He later commanded a battalion in the Philippines, a battalion of Philippine scouts. Uh, He spent a lot of time between the First and Second World War in school, as did many of the officers of that, that era, but he also spent a lot of time teaching. He was, as far as I've been able to determine, one of the very few general officers from World War II who attended the Army War College, the Naval War College, and the Air Corps Tactical School, which is the predecessor of today's Air War College. In World War II, he commanded the 92nd Infantry Division, which was one of the two African-American divisions, and it was the only one that deployed as a full division. It deployed to Italy in October of 1944 through spring of 1945. After the war, he was named to command the 2nd Infantry Division to prepare for the invasion of Japan. But then the war ended, and uh, that was not necessary. So the 2nd Infantry Division became a place where soldiers went to be um, demobilized. And then after that, he went to Japan to work for, uh, for MacArthur. For
1: MacArthur. Now, in the interwar years, after the First World War, when he stays in the Army and he's going to all these schools, is that a position that a lot of people are trying to get into? Is this a special honor to be able to go all these different war colleges, or are most officers doing this?
0: Well, the, the Army was so small that there wasn't a lot of places for officers to go, and the competition was very keen to go to commands. Allman, however, was a very good student throughout his life. He was number three in his class out of of VMI, and he excelled in every Army school that he went to. He was a very good student of his profession, and he wanted to try to go to as many uh, schools as he could. Uh, to avoid staff positions if necessary, mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted to learn about the other services. So he actively lobbied to get to the Naval War College and to the uh, ACTS, the Air Corps Tactical School.
1: Now, is this where he comes under the eye of General George C. Marshall?
0: He actually did that when he was, uh, when he was teaching at Fort Benning. Uh, after the, the Infantry Officer Advanced Course, he remained at Fort Benning on the Tactics Committee. At uh, at Fort Benning and taught uh, machine gunnery for a while because he had commanded a machine gun company during the First World War and uh, he worked for then Lieutenant Colonel George C Marshall and he worked alongside uh, Major Omar Bradley who was later in his Army War College class as well.
1: Now, does Marshall is he uh, instrumental at all in getting Almond into the ninety second or wasn't wasn't Almond supposed to go to another division at first?
0: Well, Almond. Was uh, certainly certainly um, General Marshall picked all of the the uh, division commanders. Um, if he didn't personally select them, then uh, they were identified by somebody else and he approved them. Allman believed that Marshall picked him. He was originally his first assignment as a general officer is he was the assistant division commander of the 93rd infantry division the other african-american division but he went to the 92nd the legend is that he was placed in command of the 92nd because he was a virginian and therefore he quote-unquote knew how to deal with those people
1: they did that a lot with vmi as well as citadel grads correct right
0: correct but he had also made his mark as a trainer Okay. And he was he was very well known as a trainer and that certainly I believe played a role in his selection for that division.
1: And where is it that he's training in the 92nd?
0: 92nd was split among four different installations because in the segregated era of the 19 late 1930s and 1940s no community wanted a large Number of African American soldiers next to them, and it didn't matter whether it's north or south. So his uh, headquarters was at Fort McClellan, Alabama, but he had units in Arkansas, Indiana, and Kentucky, and he had to make the circuit to all four for nearly a year.
1: And this is, it's almost impossible to create a divisional cohesion with everybody in different places.
0: It, it was. And each of those, there was a regimental combat team at uh, at each of those locations. And then what happened was in early 1943, I believe, uh, or late 1943, early 1944, the 93rd Division, which was ahead of the 92nd in training, uh, completed its training at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and moved out. It went to the Pacific and was later broken up. And the 92nd Division then went to Fort Wachuca. Mm. and only when it went to Fort Huachuca was it able to train together as a as a complete unit.
1: And how long are they there? They were
0: there almost almost a year. Okay, it it several so, months. Okay. It was a long time. They had mm. they had a long time to train. The training cycle for a division, any division, uh, was about a year long. And then many of the divisions were their training was interrupted by having to provide cadres for divisions activating after them, and and the, uh, the the soldiers who scored well on tests went off to the Air Corps and, and uh, OCS and those sorts of things.
1: Right. How about what they think of his record now, you know, at the 92nd's the uh, movement through Italy? How
0: is uh, Allman looked at
1: yeah. during the war and at uh, the end of it?
0: He is generally not well regarded, and the 92nd Division did not perform well in Italy. Part of the problem that Allman recognized is that the Army's general classification test, which was administered to all soldiers, identified soldiers in categories 1 through 4 from highest to lowest. The number of category 1 soldiers that he had in his division was very small, the number of category 4 soldiers was very large, and there was category 5 that were even worse than that and uh, there was another category that, of soldiers who were illiterate and could not even take the test. That is a reflection of the, the pre-war society that right. did not allow these soldiers the opportunities that the white soldiers did, and therefore they were unable to, to perform at the same level that a similar group of, of white soldiers could. Also, there were a large number of white soldiers who did not score well on that test, but in the white divisions... Or in the white units, you could spread them out so that they, there was a leavening process. Because of segregation, the army grouped all of those soldiers into one unit. So they tended to, there was no place else to send them. Right. So they, they right. tended to pull, pull the rest of the unit down. Now in Italy, despite all of those challenges, Allman had three regimental combat teams that functioned fairly well together. But when they arrived in Italy, they were assigned another, a fourth regimental right. combat team that was all African-American, including its leadership. And it had been in Italy for several months, not being used as an infantry regiment. It was being used in, in various other functions like uh, well, guard detail, and, and it was also air defense and uh, guarding bases and things. They did So they had lost any unit cohesion as an infantry unit that they may have had. So when they came to... To Almond's unit, there was there were friction with the other sure. regiments, a friction with Almond, and they it just was not a not a good fit. And the way uh, the way the army typically brought units into the line is they would separate regiments out as they came in with more veteran units to get the green units kind of up to speed before they were actually put into combat by themselves. The same thing happened in the 92nd Division. When this 4th Regiment came in, Alman did the same sort of thing with them and broke up the battalions and sent them off to train with his regiments. Mm-hmm. That destroyed uh, regimental regimental cohesion. He was also portrayed as being very racist. At the time. I don't think he was any more racist than the rest of the world was. Uh, The rest of, certainly the the rest of American society was, but his being from Virginia and various assumptions made about all Southerners and those sorts of things didn't help him. And then after the division failed, his thoughts on the soldiers came out and sort of branded him forever as a racist.
1: So rather than recognizing those pre-war problems that existed, he pretty much went. It's a racist right, type thing. Yeah, okay. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that came up during the war was the army's the army's uh, thought process was that a a unit placed in Indiana, for instance, would follow the state laws of that state. There were people in the Afri- African American community even then clamoring for for integration, desegregation and and not treating those troops that, sure. that way, the Army's perspective was, we'll follow the state laws where our bases are, rather than trying to superimpose something else. Mm. Allman is often castigated because he did not do something else to essentially go against what the Army was doing, go against what federal law was doing, go against state law. And it's, I think that's an unrealistic expectation. And it's
1: putting presentism... On the past.
0: Yeah. exactly yeah. and and even then he saw his role as to train this unit as best he can to go to war and not attack social problems mm-hmm. that are well beyond the scope of the army and that's that's what that 's what was going on there uh, from the presentist standpoint, what a lot of people forget today is that the law of the land from eighteen ninety three on was segregation Plessy v Ferguson. Uh, Supreme Court case made segregation the law of the land so our society was segregated and he was born in 1892 maybe I've may got it right, 1896 was uh, Plessy v. Ferguson and that was not overturned until 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, which is a year after he retired, so he lived in a world that was segregated.
1: After the war Going to the Pacific, does he ask for that, or is that is he selected by MacArthur, or is this just all by happenstance
0: it's uh it, it's all by happenstance and what what is interesting about this uh, in in uh, from the present day view is 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 he got that job the same way thousands of soldiers and officers get their jobs. Somebody in Washington called him and said you 're going overseas <laughs> uh, His first choice was to go to Moscow to be um, part of the, the defense attache team there. He didn't want any part of going to Moscow. And the rationale was that general officers were coming home and they were being replaced by people who had not spent as much time overseas as they had. So the 92nd Division did not deploy until October of 1944. He came home in June of 45. So his number of combat days is pretty low mm-hmm. compared to others. So he's going over as a, as a replacement. So Have they ever known each other? MacArthur, They've never Norman. known each other. And yeah. this is, this is the, the for me, the amazing part, because MacArthur is, is legendary for being very suspicious of anybody who's never worked for him before, and especially somebody who came from Europe. And, and, and a marshal man. And a marshal man and having served not only in Europe but in Italy, which is where Clark was. So there's another large figure to But MacArthur to with. takes to him. MacArthur this is this is the the real magic in the story, is he arrives there as the G one, the personnel officer for what was then Armed Forces Pacific. And he from the time he arrived till he became MacArthur's indispensable man is about two years. That, to me, is a credit to Allman's skills and abilities that MacArthur recognized. Because, quite simply, Allman got things done. It didn't matter what it was. Uh, This is kind of the hallmark of his whole career. Whatever task he is given, he goes at it 100%. Well,
1: how does he work with other officers? Is he consi- I mean, because we know the, the Walton Walker Allman <coughs> right, problem is right, very right. abrasive. Right, right. But is he, is he that way with a lot of other people as well?
0: Allman is very much a take charge kind of guy. Okay. And, and, and he can be very abrasive. And he drives his staff very hard. Uh, I, I've read several accounts of him by civilians, and they said the only, people, the only person that he drives harder than his staff is himself. So when he moved from G one to be the deputy chief of staff, and then finally the, the the chief of staff, part of the chief of staff's role is gatekeeper for the yeah. boss, and that takes a certain amount of of, uh, of thick skin and willingness to to tell people no who well, don't want to be told like no.
1: MacArthur picks those kind of people: Sutherland, then Mueller, right, and then, right. then Almond. He picks these people
0: who aren't gonna. Take it easy with other people. Right. And and if I look at that psychologically, and I'm not a psychologist, but MacArthur has a lot of people who want to be close to the great man. Now, he did attract sycophants, and he kind of liked to have them around. But even great men realize that they have to have somebody on the gate to keep everybody away. You can only deal with certain people. Now, to MacArthur's personality; he cer- he didn't want to deal with any more people than were absolutely necessary. So having those gatekeepers around him allowed him the space that 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 he wanted, that he personally wanted, and that he professionally needed. Do you think that Armand is sycophantic? To a certain extent, I think that's a fair assessment. But I think in a larger context, he he was simply. Very devoted to his mission, okay. professionally, and also he, he became—he certainly was devoted to MacArthur for the opportunity that he gave him. I think that he was not at first, but I think the fact that that MacArthur gave him command of this corps in Korea was something that really shocked and humbled Almond and made him even more devoted to MacArthur and determined to, to, to make him succeed
1: and of course this is what we're talking about is in the Korean War MacArthur gave Almond 10th Corps for the Incheon invasion Correct. Um, and kept it out of the control of the army commander Walton Walker right. which leads to the next question this relationship between Walker and Almond right. is strained is a nice word right, uh, right. to use is it, is it all personality is it
0: it's, it's personality and it's circumstance um first of all, Walton was no shrinking violet himself. Walton Walker was not in MacArthur's good graces. Why is that?
1: I think Do we are, know that.
0: I don't know if we know specifically, but the the big smoking gun is that Walker commanded a corps for Patton in Europe and he was pat his nickname was Patton's Bulldog. Mm-hmm. So when he came into Japan in 48 or 49, yeah, 48, yeah. he started trying to trying to get the 8th Army trained back up because it was all spread out all over Japan and constabulary units and those sorts of things. All the, the, the corps headquarters had been inactivated. We literally abandoned Korea, and the last corps headquarters was inactivated. So Walker had his army headquarters and four... Half strength or less divisions, and he started trying to train them and put in some training plans to make them more cohesive units. That really wasn't MacArthur's focus at the time. He was more concerned with rebuilding Japan. But I don't think the rub was there. I think the rub was really this issue with with Patton, and he had taken a a dislike to him. I don't know. I haven't seen any other specific uh, issues, but I, I did see that. At one point, MacArthur said that if he went, if if they went to war in the Pacific, he wanted to relieve Walker. Yeah, and he wanted to replace him with Ridgway, and that was before all that happened. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of people
1: wanted to do that, but they just didn't do that. Right. But what's so mysterious is after Walker dies, he becomes the greatest hero in the mind of MacArthur ever. Exactly. But getting back to uh, Mm -hmm. Almond. Um, we'll go by Inchon. Right, I, right, I right. want to get to right. the Tenth Corps going up into right. Wonsan and moving right, up right. towards Chosin. This is when the Chinese are right. starting to develop. Now Walker speaks Mandarin, right? right. I believe so. I mean, so. not Walker uh,
0: Almond. I uh, I don't know. I don't think he spoke Mandarin. Um, but he spoke a dialect of Chinese. I, I don't. I don't remember that. Okay. He, he may okay. have had somebody on his staff okay. that did. I I it seems like there was somebody on his staff. But here. anyway,
1: late October right. when the Marines uh funnel him in front of uh, a bunch of Chinese prisoners off right, right. from regular
0: he knows right that they're regular Chinese. Right, right. And he passed that word back to Willoughby at then FECOM headquarters, Far East Command Headquarters. And there's there's uh, there's discussion about what MacArthur's headquarters knew and believed. And what both Eighth Army and Tenth Corps knew and believed, and the in the the intelligence that Wa- that Walker and Allman were getting on the ground, indicated that there was there there were a greater Chinese presence in North Korea than FECOM headquarters wanted to admit. But I don't think anybody thought they were going to come in in any great force. They they they. Uh, I just uh, read something a couple of weeks ago about there was discussion about whether whether FECOM headquarters was actually reading and understanding the things that they were sent that they were sending. Mm. But at one point Alman interviewing a couple of these guys did not get from them that that they were coming in any great force or that there were that many across the Yalu River already. I think that was the issue. It's not whether they were coming or not. It's how many were across the Yalu into North Korea Versus how many were potentially coming on the other Does side? Does that of the affect his operations
1: at all? Because he's pretty far flung. Does he start consolidating people after he meets these Chinese or
0: <clears throat> not? Really, I think one okay. of the things to, to to remember about his disposition is that this was a roadbound army. We uh, the the U.S. Army had a lot of equipment, and of course the the South Korean Army, the the Republic of Korea Army, had almost no artillery at all. So all of that was. Was U.S. We had lots of artillery yeah. to back up there. And then, so, so all of that moved on roads, and, and there were, there are very few roads north out of, uh, out of Wansan. There are essentially four main roads out of side right. One goes north and kind of splits off. And, you know, the, the big problem that people often talk about is the separation between 10th Corps and 8th Army, setting aside all the other issues the biggest thing that kept them apart is a 4000 foot mountain range tape, that runs the electric, yeah. tape so and and that that mountain range dominates where you know where those where those units could go yeah and they were then faced by a by an army that was not road bound because it it had you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers but not a lot of equipment so that that was probably the the biggest reason he he looks to be spread out and he certainly is but from his standpoint uh it'd be difficult to see how much more he could have have been
1: concentrated right because of that
0: and he did have five divisions because he had control of the first uh of korea corps and the first rock corps had two divisions with it and they went up the they went up the coast the coast highway there, or the coast, the coast road. We were actually resupplying them by sea because where our soldiers were concerned that they didn't have the right kind of boots for that winter environment, they didn't have boots at all. So that that kind of thing. How do you assess the retreat at a Hong Nam? I think it's 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 brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's a uh, it's it's not it, it's a preservation of forces. Uh, it is absolutely not Dunkirk. Uh, I think he got everything out of there he possibly could, yeah. and it's probably his finest hour. Saves the Tenth Corps. I saved the whole Tenth Corps, yeah. and he saved 100,000 civilian refugees. Which I think he might be known more for that
1: now, at least in
0: Korea. He certainly is in Korea. You know, yeah, he certainly is yeah. in Korea.
1: And this is, we're talking yeah. about when they came out of Hongnam, they took 100,000 North Korean civilians, which right. was Almond's choice. Get them on there, right. and let's get them south. Right,
0: right. How do you think he's going to be looked at? Well, the the racial angle is what continues to 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 dominate the whole historiography about Almond, and what I've tried to do in in my book is color in the rest of the details. Uh, he certainly was a racist, as was the rest of society, but that should not obscure all of the other things that he did. He had lots of talent, and I think the reason that he was kept in command is because Ridgway came in and he recognized that that uh this was a uh this was an aggressive corps commander and it's exactly what he needed
1: and he has quite a legacy at the war college as well he does
0: he does he was the first commandant when it moved here to to uh to carlisle and he immediately started kind of redesigning the uh the program of instruction here and some of the things that he put in place then are still here now
1: great well dr lynch we appreciate it and we all look forward to Sickum Ned. (laughs) Uh, And
0: when will that be coming out? Uh, Should be October of 2019. And that's University of Kentucky Press? University of Kentucky. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at
1: norfolk.gov.